And now, from our studios in Kansas City, Sci-Fi For Me Radio is live from the bunker. Yes, so whenever you're good to go, I'm good to go. Welcome, everyone, to our new episode live from the bunker. Jason Hunt here in the bunker, and you see that I am decked out, geared up, ready for our guest who has been somebody that we've been chasing for now, what, a year or so? Writer, uh, writer, artist, publisher, and uh, general raconteur Peter Sametti from Alternate Comics joins us today. Hello, sir. How are you? Hey, I'm good. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. I don't think I'm going to be able to keep the hat on, though. Uh, so, Alterna Comics. That is uh, that is the 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 big the big thing. You guys are are making waves and and making decisions, and you're kind of going against the grain a little bit we'll talk about that a little um now one of the things that has come out this week and i can i can ask you about this on on the publishing side of things chris ryall leaving idw yesterday that news coming out we have over the weekend we've got all the dynamite stuff happening with with cecil's yep. covering everything there's a lot going on in the comics industry now that to me would seem to indicate that we're in the midst of a house of fire. Does it, as a publisher, does it feel that way to you that the industry is pretty much eating itself alive here? Are we, are yeah, we at scorched earth? Definitely. Um, I, I think this kind of stuff, it's, it starts small, of course. And then it builds up over time. So this isn't something that just, you know, all of a sudden, you know, one cover gets pulled and everyone's losing their mind or, or one person loses their job or uh, one person gets canceled or whatever, or one person gets false accusations. This isn't just something that, you know, one thing happens out of nowhere and everyone goes crazy for it. Uh, it starts small. And this kind of stuff has been going on, at least from what I can remember, uh, in terms of being very uh a very public and, and, and a widespread sort of thing uh, that people know about, I'd say at least five or six years, uh, slow little increments. I remember the, the cover, especially from, um, from DC. Uh, I forget the artist's name at the time uh, right now, but um, remember that cover with the, uh, the killing joke homage, essentially. Oh, right. That girl right. and the, and it got canceled. Yeah. And everyone was kind of like, you know what is this? this I don't. I don't remember weird. the artist on that one either. It wasn't. It wasn't Bowen. <sighs> who was that? I'd have to look. Yeah, it up. yeah. And it was a great cover, um, and it illustrated uh, the point, you know, very effectively. And it, it was a, an awesome piece considering the context of what was being mentioned within the story and, and all that other kind of stuff. But well, wasn't uh, that a variant cover? It, it wasn't yeah, it was even the variant. main cover. It was a variant. Yeah. yeah. And because people found it offensive, they had pulled the cover. Um, and that they then kind of used wording as well that described that they kind of found it offensive too, which brings up 
questions in your mind of like, well, how many people saw this before they put it out there? Yeah. You, you guys, you didn't, because that's the thing is that we're not talking about standards of production or uh, taste level or whatever it is at a publisher or editorial or whatever. We're talking about everybody here approved it. Everyone said, okay, this is art. This is a good piece. This fits. This is something people will like. Uh, they'll talk about. It'll get attention. And then when it gets attention, uh, depending on what kind of attention it gets or, or from who is giving the attention, they then decide that now this piece is too controversial to put out. This piece is too, it's too much. It's, it's, no, we agree as well. You do now, all of a sudden, you agree. Uh, so it's this kind of thing where we see all these little steps that have occurred over time. And this has happened many, many times, dozens upon dozens of times in the past couple of years. Very similar kinds of things of, you don't agree with the art. You don't agree with the person who made the art, let's say. Even if the piece really isn't, it's 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 not really much of anything. I mean, we're talking about in comics uh, in the 80s, they have, you know, Jason Todd getting beat to death by a crowbar uh, from the Joker. And that was voted upon essentially by the fans. Yeah. Now we have, oh, this, this cover, this variant is so offensive, it must be removed. Or even what we just see is a crowdfunded cover. It's the crowdfunded variant. It's not even really going to be a mass released right. variant. It almost and it almost makes you no miss offense. the days when you're complaining about how many pouches Bendis puts on on a character, right? I mean that that well, was well, the thing. I don't know like, about Bendis putting pouches on characters. I know he <laughs> uh, he likes to clog up the page with with, with too many word balloons, but that's uh, I think that's Rob Liefeld. Not right? Liefeld, Liefeld. That's not that's it. Um, I had that wrong. You know, and uh, and and even that was all just kind of like you roll your eyes a bit and you're like, yeah, okay, whatever. Uh, and you like it, you you purchase it. You don't like it, you don't purchase it. And uh, that was kind of about it. And and you learned as a publisher, as a creator, what people liked. Um, what sold, what didn't sell, and you kind of tweaked what you put out there based on that. Yeah. Now it's become, you know, and and you'll see it from all sides uh, of of things, but nowadays it just seems like it's one side just constantly piling on, and for the craziest of reasons, you know. So now it's turning into the fact that this whole thing is starting to become a more emboldened censorship movement, and it's turning into well, I don't like this person. Uh, they're succeeding a little too much, or I don't like maybe a joke that they had said. And and now it's going to start shifting, and we're starting to see it, where I don't like the fact that this person even got hired, because they got hired, and I didn't get hired. Uh, so uh, I want to make up something to take them out. Uh, so we're starting to see a lot of this stuff how much of that how much of that do you think is is professional jealousy i i want the job he has and how much of it is politically driven how much of it is uh you know the whole social justice political ideology so, right and left type yeah. of thing i mean so i think a lot of this type, uh, this type of stuff it starts off with the best of intentions it does start off with some people that are kind of concerned like legitimately concerned and they feel like, you know, well, are we sending the right message here? Is this something that should be put out there? And it's up to publishers, to creative individuals, especially to artists, to say the whole point of it is to make you feel something. Maybe you hate the way this makes you feel. That's an emotion that art will bring out in some people. That's okay. Because if, as soon as you start saying, you know what? This is in poor taste. That's in poor taste. Uh, we can't do this. We can't do that. This person's mad. That person's mad. Every single person is going to be upset about 
any kind of opinion, any kind of art, any kind of message you have in your story, as soon as you start saying, we can only say certain messages, we can only say certain things, we can only draw certain things, we can only hire certain people. As soon as you go down that road and you don't even know when to stop, you don't even know what's what, you don't know when to say, here, the, the line's here, we don't pass this line, and that's it. And as soon as you start saying, uh, well, it can't hurt too bad if we just go back an inch. Uh, and again, again, we can't, it's, it's, we put the line back a little bit more. Uh, that's not too bad. And then before you know it, you're so far back. You're at a place now where you were 10, 20 years ago. You'd say, I would never have gone there. I would never have, have done this. But because it doesn't feel extreme, it's one little tiny thing at a time. And before you know it, you're all the way back and you're, completely at a place where you didn't think you'd ever be and well, this is kind of where we're finding a lot of creative industries right now and it and it seems like uh not only on the on on the the creative aspects of things but also just as a society i mean here we are we've got a group uh, take up in seattle for example you know taking over a certain a segment of the city and and segregating within that and i thought well wait a minute i thought the whole idea of eliminating things like racism was to get away from segregation and here these people are that are sitting there saying well we want we want progress we want you know all of these you know social justice values and the first thing they do is they implement segregation i thought that that's not that that doesn't feel like progress to me. And then you look at how things are playing out in the comics industry where certain people, you know, we have this this article that came out in Bleeding Fool about the, the Whisper Network and, you know, certain people are targeted based on things that they post on Twitter or they post on social media or they didn't vote the right way or this. None of this feels like progress. None of it feels like we're advancing. It feels like we're taking steps back, like you're saying, you know, 15, 20 years. But it feels like almost we're going back even further than that into the late 50s, early 60s when segregation was a thing. Only now we're segregating not just by race, but by gender, by political ideology, by, you know, what group you belong to or don't belong to or align with or don't align with. And people are deciding that you align with a group, whether you decide that you're aligned there or not. You know, if you, yeah. for example, you know, for the longest time, did your best to stay neutral in this whole comics game mess. And people decided for you. Uh, well, in a way, too, in many ways, I still am. Uh, and what I mean only by that neutrality is the fact that I'm not only for Comicsgate. It's just when people want me to break it down, if they want to treat things white, which is how so many people unfortunately want to treat every issue nowadays. So they say, are you for or against Comicsgate? Yeah. Well, I'm obviously for Comicsgate. But does that mean that I'm only for that? No, absolutely not. Uh, I have a broad range of tastes. I'm associated with a broad range of people. Most people that read Alterna, I know people don't want to believe this, but most of them don't even know or care about Comicsgate. Most of them just want to read good comics, and they want to be entertained, and they want to have a, a good time when they read a comic book. And they want to have a positive interaction with a creator. Whether or not they enjoyed the book or not, they want to be able to express 
you know, oh, I like this one. You know, I get this kind of message all the time in shows online. I like this one, but this one's not really to my taste or this one I just thought was kind of a stinker. I don't really get too much of those because people tend to really like all the alternative books uh, <laughs> in one degree or another. So we don't really get too many people that are like, oh, this was absolutely awful. But when we do, it's OK, thanks for reading, you know, and uh, and I hope you enjoy the next one. And, and that's about it. You know, when there's an extreme reaction, when there's some kind of extreme uh, hatred or a comment, and those have come our ways, too, about the books. Sometimes it stays about the books. Most of the time it has nothing to do with the books. <laughs> but if it's ever about the book, OK, you know, that's that's again what this is art. We're putting artwork out into the world. Created uh, pieces are art. These are going to reflect uh, differently for everybody. These are going to uh, mix in with your experience as a person, your, your perspective as an individual. And you're going to say, you know, well, this one speaks to me in this kind of a way, or this one doesn't, or uh, this one, you know, I, I absolutely love it, or this one, I absolutely hate it. As an artist, if you're going to be comfortable with accepting irrational praise, people that just go, I don't know what about it, I, I just love it. This is great. It's just I, I, I don't know why I can't explain it. I love the, the character or the whatever or I don't know why, though, but I just love it. If you're going to accept that, but you can't accept when someone just is like, I don't know what it is about this. I just I don't like it. It just I don't, I don't understand it. Why, why is it out there? Why is it? Why, why are you making this comic? And so and some people you have would to say as that an criticism artist, is strong enough to create. Yeah. Well, you have to, as an artist, be strong enough and have thick skin enough to understand if you're going to accept the praise, you have to also accept the criticism. And uh, at times it's going to feel like hate for your art. And at times it's going to feel like, well, because you put maybe an extension of your soul and your time and your uh, effort into it, it's going to feel personal that, well, they must they must hate me because they hate what I've created. Yeah. So that used to be a thing that was always preached to every creative person have a thick skin because you're going to get all kinds of people interacting with your artwork when it goes out there if you don't want that experience i'm sure your parents have a refrigerator you can put your <laughs> art right on there so if it's going to go out there and i've had it too where people have said you know uh, i i've created the, the chair and they said uh, more often than not how much they really love it and it was great and they enjoyed it I've had a couple people over time who said, you know, it's too violent. You know, I don't like that it's, you know, that there's language in it. I don't like the, the subject matter. You know, I don't even know why you would make such a thing. That's fine. That's perfectly fine. If something isn't for you, it's not to your taste or whatever. That's why it's, it's so great that we have a large diversity of books, not just at Alterna, but in the whole world as well. And it used to just be like, good, well, I hope you find something that is to your taste and that you do enjoy. Yeah. And I think every artist kind of feels that way, too. But along the way, we've decided, you know what, we should make something that is always appealing to every single person there is. That's impossible to do if you're going to create art. We're, even people that love pizza still prefer one pizza over the other. Well, and I would even say that there is a certain segment of the of the comics industry, especially, who decided that we only we only should be making one type of book to appeal to a certain type of person. And you need to change how you think and what you feel and what you like in order to like our stuff, because this is all you're going to get. And it doesn't feel like uh, diversity of ideas uh, for example, is a very accepted thing in the mainstream 
uh, part of comics, which is why you've got all of these indie indie projects out there now, all of these crowdfunding projects, because there is no diversity of thought. There is no acceptance of other points of view among DC and Marvel professionals. And and Robert's got a point here. The percentage of people who actually buy the comics probably don't know about the internal politics, but I would even say you probably don't even have that many people who are even buying comics now. So it's such a small market to begin with. Why would you do anything to alienate at, at least half of your potential market? You know, this whole thing with Kelly Sudeikonik saying, if you don't like my politics, don't buy my book. To me, that's marketing suicide. Why in the world would you do that kind of thing and sit there and tell people not to buy your product? It doesn't make any sense to me. If I were to sit here and say, okay, well, if you don't like... If you don't like Tribble Bites, then don't watch our channel. I, I can't fathom well, that because kind of it, thing. it provides the illusion of control. And at the end of the day, that's what it's all about is, yeah. is, is control. So by telling people, and they always they always wonder this, uh, and I always answer the same way. So they'll say, you know, why, why do people do that? The, the same example that you just gave. Uh, it's because it's so much easier to maintain the power in that dynamic between uh, project creator, uh, whoever you are, and consumer, and tell them, don't buy it. It's so much more difficult to tell someone, I hope you enjoy this and give it a shot and that you'd buy it. Yeah. That's you surrendering your power and control in that dynamic to that person. It is now up to them whether or not they want to have it. If you take that option away from them and say, look, I don't want you to buy it. Not that, oh, this might not be to your taste or whatever it is, but you're literally closing that discussion. You now maintain that power and that control, allegedly, you know, in your own mind. You, you control that. Right. Uh, now, the thing is, is that once you go out there, see, this message, that's, that's why this is a pointless message to put out. Whoever sees that message, uh, let's say it speaks to them or doesn't speak to them. They vote with their wallet or they don't vote with their wallet, whatever they want to do. It only impacts whoever sees that message. Now, if you're someone who doesn't pay attention, if you're the vast majority of people who don't pay attention to that kind of stuff, you're not on Twitter, you're not on wherever, or it doesn't really matter to you, or you're not even following that creator. You may even be a fan, but not even following him around. You go to the store, you pick up that book. Your politics are completely, you don't know what theirs are, they don't know what yours are. You still pick up their book and you buy it and you read it and you enjoy it. There, the whole message makes no sense. That's why it's an illusion of control. It, no. doesn't, it doesn't really exist, but it's there because that person that makes that message feels like I'm maintaining the control here. I'm telling you not to purchase it. Instead of doing the positive thing, which you should do is say, hey, here's my work, and I hope it speaks to you. You enjoy it. I hope it looks interesting, and check it out. And surrender that control. If The more you surrender that kind of control as a creative person, the happier you'll be. Uh, these people that want to kind of control every single aspect of who reads it, how they interpret it, what they got out of it, if they liked the character they were supposed to like, if they hated the character they were supposed to hate, <laughs> you'll often find those creators are miserable <laughs> because you're going to get along the way. No one really feels the same way, even when I've created a book. So I'll go back to the chair again because it's a book that was first released as a graphic novel. So the story was out in its entirety. And 
I always got feedback from people based on the fact that they read the whole thing. So they would come up and say, oh, I really enjoyed this book. It was great. Or, you know, it was one out of a million who would say, oh, yeah, this is garbage and, you know, whatever. Uh, but most people would say it was great and they liked it and they told me why and, you know, all this great stuff. But when it was out as a single issue about 10 years later when we did the newsprint, I would get people because they were bi-monthly release uh, once every two months. The wait in between people would go from issue to issue anticipating certain things and they would they would give me their theories on things they would give me their spin on how they thought the story was going right so because of that it made it even more interesting for me to hear what they thought about stuff to hear you know what they were looking forward to what they what they they thought how the story was going to go the characters they liked the characters they hated the characters they hoped didn't didn't die or whatever it is and then in the end because there's so many twists and turns in that story when they would say you know i really thought this and then i was kind of disappointed about that but like i really i, I enjoyed my time with the story and, and and where it went and that's that's all it's about. And even if the end result was that they didn't enjoy <laughs> at the end of it, their time <laughs> with the story, that's still okay too. Yeah. But as a creative person, you have to surrender that control over. It's now in someone else's hands. They're going to read that story. They're going to interpret it how they want. When I was a junior, I think a junior in high school, you know, high school, of course, you're always reading all of these different great classic novels in, in English class. There was one, and, and for the life of me, I can't remember which one it was, but you always have those analyses, you know, what did the author mean, what was the subtext, and all the allegories and all this other stuff. Well, there was one in particular where the author was like, it doesn't mean anything. I, I didn't put any, there's, I, I just wrote the story. It's, if you want to interpret whatever, that's fine, that's on you, but yeah, I, don't, I don't mean anything by it, it's just a story. And I think sometimes people take these interpretations a little bit too seriously, maybe, that, that they're reading into things. But at the same time, you know, on the flip side of things, there are some comics that are out there, especially modern-day comics, where there is no subtext. It's, it's right out there in the front, you know, here's, I'm going to wear my politics on my sleeve and throw it right there in your face. And you're talking about, you know, the people who don't know the politics of somebody like Ron Mars or Kelly Sue DeConnick or, or, or Ethan or anybody, they pick up a book. They either like the book, they don't like the book. If they like the book, great. If they don't like the book and they just sit there and maybe write into DC, Hey, I didn't like this book. Well, suddenly now they're harassing that creator. And you get that, you know, like you're saying, that, that feeling of control, they start to lose that control because somebody is, is blowing back at them saying, I don't like what you did. And if it's, a, if it's a matter of craft, I don't like how this was written. I don't like the development of this character. I don't like, you, I don't like what you did with this character that's 80 years old, that sort of thing. Then suddenly the, the, the customer is the bad guy. And that doesn't make any sense to me. It's it it we are at the point now where it's an us versus them. It's the creators like you're talking about with the control thing. They're invoking this us versus them mentality for people who aren't even aware that there's a battle going on. Yeah. OK, so that's where fine art and mass produced art like uh, movies, books, comics, music. That's where those differ. 
And that's where a lot of confusion I find uh, stems from, is that a lot of people fashion themselves as a fine artist in terms of they're creating this piece. It means a lot. They put their soul into it. There's a message in it. And then it goes out there in the world and it's perceived however it is. In mass-produced arts and creative industries, you make a product, you make a story. So let's just stick to comics. So you make your comic issue. And then let's say it's not just a one and done. It's a ongoing series. And then let's throw in the, the fact that now this character also has 50, 60 plus years of, of continuity, of a fan base, of people that know and understand who this character pretty much is supposed to be. Um, and then there's also people, obviously, they're going to be reading this character for the first time who have no prior relationship. They don't really understand it. Maybe a friend or a spouse or whoever recommended or the person at the store recommended the book to them. So you're dealing with all these kinds of different audiences. Now, when you start getting back feedback that let's say you want to do something entirely different with the character and you want to take it in a different direction, whether that's uh, through personality, uh, physical traits, or a mix of both, or whatever it is, a new costume even. Um, now, when you get feedback on that, because now we're in the business where it's not fine art, and you didn't just create your piece for the museum or for display, and, mm -hmm. and it is what it is now. You know, It's kind of, okay, um, you're getting feedback now directly from a, a, a buyer, Let's say they express, I've been reading this book for 40 years. And, you know, this character's this is a really weird departure for this character to behave in this way. I'm not, I'm not really liking the way this is going. I don't understand, you know, why you would do this to this character that I care about. Because that's the other part, too, is that as a publisher, if you are going to have characters in existence for so long, you need to understand the reason that people are reading that book still, the reason they're buying the shirt. They're going to see the movie. They're going to get the toy. They're going to do all these other things. Is because you've created an emotional attachment with that character. People are emotionally invested. So if you don't understand why they care about the character or you don't expect them to care about the character, which is even worse, you're in the wrong business. So if you get back that feedback and they don't like it and all this other stuff, you can respond back accordingly and hoping that, you know, they stick with the story. Uh, they, you think that this is going to be an interesting story to tell and you'll see, you know, it's going to pay off and, you know, we hope you stick with us. Or you can fire back and be, you know, negative about it and, and think that the customer is yelling at you and this and that. But at the end of the day, what happens is if you get a lot of negative feedback and then it correlates with poor sales and you don't course correct, what are you doing then? Yeah. Because now you're just going to drive yourself out of business. So that's where this turns into it's art, but it's also business. And if you don't understand the fact that you're not just creating a piece for a museum or you're creating a piece just to self-express, you're creating a piece of story to entertain. If there's no one left to entertain, if people are not being entertained by it, why are you making it? And that's where the publishing side of it, the business side of it, needs to step in and say, okay, uh, I get what you're trying to do here, but we're getting too far away. We're losing our audience. You know, your message here, the way you want to do this character now, I get it. But at the same time, we're not really selling these anymore. Mm -hmm. And I'm eventually going to have to not just change the story back or the character back or whatever. I'm going to have to fire you because otherwise we're going to go out of business. <laughs> so that's where they're not looking at the sales correlating with yeah. the feedback now, because if the negative feedback is there but the sales are through the roof yeah. by all means 
who can argue that? Keep doing it. Now, do you have these conversations with the creators at Ultraner? Because it's a little bit different setup for you because these are creator-owned titles. You're publishing them, but you're not you're not the owner of the IP. So when you look at sales, and now your distribution model has completely changed, so your sales numbers are going to be affected by that. <coughs> Excuse me. And now you have the opportunity to go past issue number three. You can do these ongoing series. Have you had conversations with your creators about just how much how much feedback you're able to put into it or is it just we just let them go and they're in charge and they do whatever it is for as long as it sells well i always let them know that i'm here to to help them i'm here to help uh, advise to guide them to offer a suggestion um sometimes i'll have to really be firm in the fact that you know maybe this needs a title change because uh, another title exists or this title doesn't really describe it you're being too coy or you're being uh, too literal and it's not interesting um, anything they're aware anytime I offer feedback at all it's always to help out and to make the sales better and to make more people read it because that's what sales equal especially at alternate sales equal readers which is what we all care about we all want people to read the story first and foremost now, when it comes to the differences between creator-owned and a publisher that, uh, you know, like a like a Marvel or DC, where it's like their characters and there's real little involvement, especially in terms of you can just switch out creative teams. So it's not like uh, we'll say, uh, for instance, uh, Keith Gleason with Mighty Mascots. That's Keith's book. He's the creator. He's the writer. And he works with uh, Anton Vandy to color it. And he works with Ian Morianto, who draws it and does a spectacular job with that. But if Ian and Anton want to continue and Keith doesn't, the story ends. If Keith wants to continue but Ian and Anton don't, Keith hires new people. So there's a difference there with creator-owned where it's this is this person's vision and they want to keep on telling the story. Do they work in tandem with their creative team? Yes, to tell the best story possible. Everybody that's involved does what, what they got to do to make it great. But when it comes to these corporate-owned kind of characters, that's where it gets a little bit odd. And that's where I find with Alterna, people, they love our books because they love the fact that these are straight from the source. It's kind of like getting in on early Marvel. You know, Stan, Jack, Steve, Joe, all those guys. It was like, these are the ones that are making everything, and it's, it's from them. Later on, when it turns into certain creators, now you're passing the torch you got to make sure you're passing that torch to the right people that they're not just tearing down, but they're building up yeah. and that if they do a, a step sideways, it's to still benefit the story overall and expand upon it and grow upon it and not forget what came before. And that's kind of what made me love Marvel when I was growing up. Um, for those that question, you know, they think like, Oh, he's just going to pile on on superheroes and whatnot. They can see exactly what my office looks like. I absolutely love <laughs> Marvel and DC. That was a lot of my life. Um, and, and in some ways, it still is. I'm a, I'm a big fan of what came before. Uh, Stan Lee uh, is absolutely one of my one of my comic book heroes. Uh, so and all those guys, too. Uh, so it's about respecting what came before when it comes to doing something with a legacy character, something with someone's character that isn't necessarily yours. Yeah. Um, when it comes to being creator own, though, that's your character. That's your story. And the readers are there to get your vision, to get what you have to say about it. Now, does that mean they're going to like that vision? I don't know. 
no one knows till they actually read the story and we get the feedback. But that's what we're there to do. And I'm not going to ever censor, let's say, Keith wants to kill off a certain character or uh, another kind of creator wants to create a certain character and they want to do this and they want to do that. They'll put something past me. But at the end of the day, I leave it up to them and I say, look, if this is something you feel strongly on, do it because this is your story. Now, you mentioned the Mighty Mascots. We had a question in the chat from Sci-Fi Snob. What alternative books would you suggest for girls 18, uh, 8 to 14 years old? Have you got any stories there that would be appropriate for that? that yeah, Mighty moment? Mascots is great. Um, Mr. Crypt, which is the story of a, uh, a living skeleton that uses a top hat and a mustache for a disguise. Uh, kids of all ages and uh, you know, boys, girls, they love it. And uh, parents love it, too. It's, it's a real nice book. It's a, a, a very uh, lighthearted book, but it still has uh, it's kind of reminiscent of, of older comics that were of all for all ages, where it still kind of has a, a message. But it's just it's just the subtext. It's very nuanced. You know, you just get it through the fact of how this character is living their life and the interactions they have, which is what a story should always be about. Um, it should be about the character. And the fact that, you know, what what do they care about? What are they concerned with? Um, what is their life? Not necessarily, you have to remove your headspace and get out of your own life and go into the life of the character. Um, and then we've got uh, Gods and Gears, which a lot of kids seem to love as well. Uh, but specifically for girls, uh, I would say, you know, start them off with Mighty Mascots and, and Mr. Crypt. Uh, I think they would really like that. Uh, at least it shows we get a lot of fan art from kids that come up and they bring their drawings of those characters from those books. Now I've, I've got the, uh, the website up here, alternacomics.com. And I see a lot of, uh, horror titles as well. I mean, you've got, uh, blood realm, you've got, yeah, with Swan King, kind of a, kind of a horror type. There's no Walker. That's it. That's the funny part. I think it's mostly because of the fact that uh, the chair is probably the number one selling title at Alterna of all time because it's mine. Um, and it's been there since the beginning. Uh, people associate us as a horror publisher, but we actually don't publish a lot of horror. We, we actually publish way more sci-fi and adventure type books. So uh, Swan King is an adventure kind of book, uh, Red Koi as well. Um, we've got Eden is a nice sci-fi fantasy adventure book. Gods and Gears is, is an adventure book with touches of like a, a superhero kind of genre. Yeah. Um, even Blood Realm, it's got horror elements, but it's mostly a dark fantasy adventure book. So it, it is funny though, but but a lot of people they often think oh, Alterna, that's that's a horror publisher, or they think we're an all ages publisher, um, which is which is also funny because we don't have too many all ages books. I think we have maybe five or so. Could, now is that is that misperception maybe because of the the newsprint and the the lower cover price that maybe we're associating that with not sophisticated and so not adult or is it just people don't know they look at your covers and they they just make these assumptions because they don't know really who you are i think because all of our covers look fun and the the pricing is is nice i think a lot of the time they associate you know oh this must be more for uh, a younger audience but this is for people who like fun comic books yeah. <laughs> this isn't for people who necessarily even when we have an intense story we still keep it fun it's all about taking you out of your world and putting you into the story uh, the world that the story is in 
Um, but I find a lot of comics nowadays uh, they don't really they don't really stand out. They don't really scream fun. It it just is kind of one big indecipherable blur sometime. Um, you know, everything kind of has like this sameness to it. Uh, what's in comics now, as far as being popular for art, is it's a lot of like uh, pastel and a lot of uh, there's no real strong defined inking, which is what I really love too in comics. They they help that contrast to pop. Um, the cover design, uh, a lot of publishers still shy away nowadays from uh, taglines on the covers or word balloons because it's not as much of a big deal. It doesn't mm. need to stand out as much on the shelf anymore because the system has become so predicated on pre-ordering through a, a massive catalog. Right. So they figure like, well, we don't really need a, you know, the covers stand out on a newsstand. But the thing is, yeah, maybe you don't need that, but it still makes the covers look great when the person sees it at the store or they get it and they have it now at home. And it's like, oh, this looks like a fun comic. And this is a story that, you know, the, the cover hints at the story within. Whereas, you know, a lot of the times now we'll even see covers where they don't even put the, the logo on there anymore. It's just like, oh, here's the cover. You know, it's it's the the. Uh, what do they call it? Like the virgin variant or whatever it is. Right. Um, it, it's it's all stuff that looks like it's a shame to be a comic book. And at Alterna, the comics are unashamedly comic books. Or you go the other way like Marvel's doing. It says, out on a Wednesday. And that's that's all that's on the cover. I, mean, I, can't, I, those are just I can't even believe that. It's, Someone it's, needs to get fired for that. That's insane. Uh, question, <laughs> question in the chat. I want to get into the, to the idea of the orders here. What are Alterna's top five selling books? What have you got right now that's your top five um, Okay, so I'll, I'll just take that for, uh, for this year because otherwise that question gets really dicey since we've been around for 14 years. Um, top five selling books this year. Number one, uh, I would say, let's see, I would say Legends of Log, that one shot. That's probably our number one. Uh, the number two would be Blood Realm, uh, volume three, number one, um, which would basically be like Blood Realm seven. Um, because that story continues upon it, even though we split it up into different volumes. Uh, number three, uh, maybe Void Walker, number, uh, number three. And then, let's see, probably Tinseltown, volume two, number one, uh, Tinseltown, Losing the Light. And then uh, Swan King uh, would be number five. Now, how do you think sales are going to be affected now that you are no longer going through diamond and you're no longer limited. I have to make bigger print runs <laughs> <laughs> believe it or not <laughs> well now well, see but the thing of it is you know you're you're not limited to just three issues on a story now you can go no, you can it, go it, longer are, are you starting to see sales pick up now that you can do issue four five six and continuing or are people starting yeah, to pick yeah. up and, and say oh this is a new series I can follow so this is this is the funniest part. Um, when we left Diamond, I based our, our next print run without Diamond, uh, sort of based on what we did with Diamond, right. um, maybe like 10% less. So instead of printing, let's say instead of printing like 1,000, we printed like 900 or 800. Um, I find now that I'm, I'm selling out too quickly, we need to we need to print even more. We need to print probably 30% more now than what we did when we were through Diamond. Oh, my. Um, and that's because we sell... Uh, not just directly to readers, but directly to retailers, too. And retailers are finding, whoa, 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 we missed out on all these other books that we could have got because <laughs> Diamond <laughs> didn't take care of us with reorders a lot of the time. So books would sell through relatively quickly, and then retailer couldn't get them in. 
So they would just lose out on the books or they would go, well, we'll try placing a reorder, but we're probably not going to get it. And they found that when they went to our site, they had missed out on a ton of books. They had missed out on so many. So what happens is not only are we selling out of all of our back issues, which we're going to have to launch a whole crowdfunding campaign to reprint like 30 back issues. Uh, we're also going to have to increase our uh, runs going forward because in them finding the back issues that they can now sell, they're ordering more of the present day issues because of the fact that these issues continue. So even though we're dealing with maybe half of the retailers we dealt with with Diamond, we're dealing with even more customers and we're dealing with retailers that are placing even larger orders. So it, it was it was we didn't know what to make of it. I had no idea what to expect. I said, well, I'll, I'll order on the conservative side of things. I don't think we're going to sell through you know things too fast. We're just doing it direct. I, I can't imagine we're going to get flooded with orders. And uh, and we did. <laughs> so we're actually <laughs> close to selling out, very close to selling out of uh, three of our titles that we just had come out like about maybe four weeks ago. Now, are so, there titles in your catalog that you're looking at because of the response to the back issues? Uh, and I know with them being creator-owned, there's a rights uh, conversation that has to be had there as well. But are you looking at certain titles that are out of print and say, you know, we could do a whole new run of these and sell them as, you know, second printing or third printing or whatever you want to, however you want to label it for marketing. Are you seeing any interest that would justify something like that? And I know you'd have to go back to the creators and say, hey, we want to run this book again. And mm -hmm. some of those creators have since stepped away because of your social media policy. And, you know, well, you know, we're not allowed to do any block bots oh, or any yeah. that. If we're talking but, about the, the ones that had left two years ago, uh, yeah, we, we wouldn't be reprinting anything from them. Uh, with the creator-owned publisher, we only would own the publishing and distribution rights of the book. So they would right. basically own, if they want to make stickers, if they want to make a T-shirt, or if they want to sell rights to a, a, a TV show or a film or a video game or whatever, um, they would own that. So we wouldn't get a cut at all of that. Uh, at Alterna, it's, it's 100% um, IP owned for the creator. Um, we don't own any of the IP. Now, when it comes to reprinting issues that the creator is still under contract, so let's say um, a lot of the early Blood Realm issues are sold out. So even though we went back and we, we put them out as giants, which compiled different volumes into a larger uh, uh, $4.99 book, um, we would still be going back to print with those because Rob Geronimo is still under contract with us. He wants to be here for a very long time. He still has a lot more stories to tell with uh, Blood Realm. So he's all about that. And at that point in time, because of the fact that he's going to stick with us and we don't need to do this whole system anymore, breaking down by volume if a creator doesn't want to, because we did that really to kind of work around Diamond and the fact that they would cancel your book if you didn't have uh, good enough sales. Right. Um, so a number, a new number one, and I didn't want to do a number one that didn't feel legitimate, but a new number one that would kind of be the start of a new story arc was kind of the way we went. And that's how these, uh, these volumes came about, but we don't have to do that. So when we put out Blood Realm and we reprint issues one, two, three, and then volume two, one, two, and three, it instead will be one, two, three, four, five, six. And it won't have a limited series kind of tag on it anymore. It'll be the story arc and it'll be one of whatever, two of whatever. Um, so that's an interesting thing where a lot of the creators are also looking forward to that, too. So it's uh, almost like so, what they did with uh, the Batman Legends of the Dark Knight title where you had yeah. 
four or five parts in a story, and that's the title of the story, but you still have yep. num numbers for the issues that just continue on. Yeah, and that's how I would have loved to, in a perfect world, in a perfect situation with comic distribution, I would have loved to do that right from the start. But again, because of the way that the, the industry is not as healthy as some might think it is, um, if you're an indie publisher, it's even less healthy. Uh, the market is completely flooded. There's more comics than ever before, less places to sell them in. And the industry keeps shrinking, whether it's through distribution practices or the reactions uh, of people on social media, the cancel culture that is currently existing uh, in abundance. And people are championing it as if this is wonderful to have censorship of the arts within comics. Oh, this is fantastic. Let's yeah. just keep doing it. This is the mentality. It's shrinking the industry more and more every month and then throw in what we currently have with uh, with this virus going on. Um, and the ramifications of all of that, it's a perfect storm to kill off comics entirely. You have to be now more resourceful and more strong-willed than ever before to stay in this industry. Um, otherwise, you're, you're as good as gone, and you might as well look for something else to do for a living. Um, but at, at Alternate, we're going to take advantage of every opportunity we can, and, and the, co the customers are there. We're getting new customers every day. And new retailers, too, on board, and even some old retailers that are discovering or rediscovering a lot of the books that we have out there that they just didn't know existed before. But we've got them all on our site, and now they can see them, they can easily order them, and they're going to do so, and they are doing so. I find it really interesting that you have retailers that are, like you say, just discovering Alterna when you guys have been around for 14 years. I mean, how is it, yeah. how is it that... A lot of us out in in the world have not heard of Alterna Comics up until the last couple of years. I mean, you're you're making strides, and I keep seeing on your social media where you post new retailers that are coming on board the direct uh, the direct ordering uh, side of things. Where were you hiding? I mean, I know you guys were were publishing graphic novels to start with, and then you went into doing the the monthly issues and the singles did that make the difference on raising awareness who you who you are and what you guys are doing oh absolutely and that's why i would hate to see the single issues go away um so you're correct when we first started off uh maybe i'd say the first year before we had distribution this was 2006 to 2007 this it was such a small small company it's still small but smaller than small uh, practically non-existent. We were print on demand. Uh, the the website was a MySpace page. <laughs> it was all this stuff that I didn't know what was gonna, ever going to happen of Alterna. I just figured this is a good place for me to self-publish and cut my own, you know, books out there and 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 kind of get used to things and and maybe eventually I move on in five years or so and I get hired to do something else or I can get picked up, you know, for the story at another publisher. Um, and that never happened and, and it just kept rolling along and and. Eventually, I found a lot of people that were just like me, that they wanted to tell their stories. They wanted to maintain their ownership of the property. And they just wanted to get books out to readers. And they wanted to have the ability to have their own vision and tell the story the way they want to tell it. And I figured, OK, let's, you know, let's put out some books together and let's just kind of be smart about it and stay small and then slowly grow. And we did that. And there was, of course, uh, the funniest part is it was great until we had distribution. And now I figured distribution would have answered all of our problems and it would have got the books out to everyone. And it seems like all distribution did for us was add a mountain of problems, especially early on, because I was still naive to the way that distribution worked. 
and especially to the fact that there at the time there were about 4,000 shops that ordered comics and now there's less than 2,000. Um, so that shows you right there how much the industry has, has shrunk in terms of footprint for retail. Right. But even then, I thought, okay, maybe half of these stores will order uh, a comic from us. So maybe we'll sell at least like 1,500 to 2,000 copies. You know, it shouldn't be too bad. Look at all these other comics. They sell 20, 30, 100,000, you know. Um, we've got really good stuff, and, and we're getting in previews now. We're official. And uh, even my local store was like, hey, you know, you're doing print on demand right now. But, you know, once you get into Diamond, we'll carry your books. I said, oh, OK, I understand. So we got into Diamond and then I showed them and I said, hey, look, we're in the catalog. Could you get some of our books in? You know, we could do, we could do a signing and we can have all this great. And we don't really carry indie books. Yeah. <laughs> That's what they said. The goalposts keep like, moving. <laughs> I was like, oh, OK. So I've been coming here for like five or six years and it turned into a, eventually, you know, there's always an excuse to not have your book on our shelf. Um, it was very strange. And, and I found that the, the, the industry was even more strange than that. That was I wish that that's all it was, <laughs> was that some stores were just going to always invent an excuse. Um, but eventually I find that there's so many different things. A lot of it is this pay to play system where you're like, how do I grow? How do we get these books out to more people? Oh, well, take an ad out and previews. Uh, you know, uh, put more money into previews and put an insert out there. But do this, do that. It's always about giving more money to Diamond. And then they'll maybe help promote you. And they would help promote you. But the thing is, at the end of the day, let's say the ad costs like $800,000. Um, how much more product do you need to sell to just break even? And at the end of the day, Diamond gets your ad dollars and then they get more money on the product that's sold. And you're lucky if you broke even. Um, yeah. Free comic book day, for example, we rolled the dice on that a couple of times, and th that really wasn't that great <laughs> in terms of in terms of marketing, in terms of anything. People would give us all these wonderful reports. We got your book in, and it sold out. We're all out within five minutes. Everybody took your book. We ordered like 50 copies of it. It was a uh, at the time 2009 was a free comic book day uh, graphic novel anthology. Uh, we, we took, I think, a, a two, three thousand dollar hit on the print run just to make it affordable enough so retailers could get it in there. And we thought, you know what? Great. Everyone we're getting hundreds of retailers sending me emails. Everyone loves these books. You know, we're going to order more and this and that. I said, OK, awesome. You know, they're going to get more of our next graphic novels that feature some of these titles. And uh, uh, that never happened. <laughs> and so now looking back at it, I'm like, you know, when I look back at Free Comic Book Day every year, there's usually a publisher that, that goes out of business every year that participates in free comic book day. And it's because they have to put their price out there for the retailer. They have to really make it low. So it's attractive because they're a nobody publisher. No one knows their story, their creators, whatever it is. And then they say, okay, well, you know, we're expecting maybe 50 or 60,000 orders come in. Well, what happens if 30 or 40,000 come in and you just took a big hit and you just took like a five or $6,000 you know, wash on this whole thing right. um, that could be completely devastating for a first time publisher. Um, I strongly believe that you shouldn't even participate in free comic book day until you've been in the industry for between three to five years. Uh, and you know a bit more about your audience, you know a bit more about how the system works. Well, if you're a first time publisher and you think that's going to be the answer to your marketing uh, problems, you, you've got a whole other thing coming. Well, and even then, you know, even if you're an established publisher, 
there's no guarantee that you're going to make money with your product because you know that that comes to mind here this uh, earnings report from IDW which is one I would say probably in the top 5 top four publishers you've got Marvel DC you got IDW you got Image Dark Horse IDW here sitting here 26 million dollars in the red and yesterday we find out that uh, that Chris Ryall is leaving the company and he's going to go form his own imprint and do his own thing he's going he's going on his own to be an indie creator indie publisher i'm not exactly sure what he's going to be doing at this point or if even anybody's going to be interested in it because he hasn't managed to to make this company successful what what interest is there in what he does next yeah it's, yeah it's, it's uh it's, yeah it's tough i wish him the best of luck with it um there's there's obviously there's many problems that that idw has had is not just uh, comic related but yeah. it's definitely not helping um but yeah the the industry needs to and when i say especially the industry i mean the bigger publishers in particular and distribution they need to understand that doing anything that shrinks the footprint of getting comic books out there is the worst thing you could do so whether that is um and, and I hate to say it because it, it's something that does matter a lot, yeah. but it honestly probably matters the least when, when I say this, uh, comic creators being, uh, relatively hostile <laughs> on social media <laughs> is a symptom of how bad the industry is. Yeah. It isn't the cause of why the industry is so bad. If the industry was actually much better, you'd find creators that weren't as upset, insecure, uh, looking for reasons to lash out, unhappy with their status at their job, feeling like they're not necessarily uh, being able to tell the stories they want to tell or associate with who they want to associate, et cetera, et cetera. And this goes down the whole line right. um, because of the fact that comics are it's, it's very difficult to make a living in comics, even if you work for the bigger publishers. Um, there's so much product out there. It's, it's a whole flooding the market mindset uh, it's it's very weird um so if distribution said you know what we're gonna try to get these comics out into as many places as possible all those dollar reprints they're gonna try to go into dollar trees now they're gonna go into these more affordable markets um, and they're reprints so they're not new so you don't have to as a comic shop even worry about you know that kind of eating out uh, your your new uh, audience or whatever it is. Uh, so even these bigger stores too, the newsstand that used to be there, um, they can have different books in different markets. They don't have to have this whole thing where it turns into we're cannibalizing our market with the comic shops. And if anything, that helps to grow the comic shops. If you were to see, if you're a business owner or you're looking to start a business or whatever it is, and you see comics are everywhere and you see everyone's reading comic books and you see that there's movies and they're doing great. The comic books are in all the stores. The, the toys are everywhere. The T-shirts are all over the place. It isn't like what it was 20, 30 years ago where, you know, comics were still even at the heyday in the 90s. It was still kind of like you don't really you don't really put them out there and say how much you love comic books. Um, it was still kind of a, you talked about it in hushed tones <laughs> and, and then you were a little more boisterous with your friends yeah. and you, you all proclaimed how much you loved comics and, and everything like that. But now everyone, 
you're weird if you don't like something that's related to comic books. Uh, so in, in what should be a new golden age of success for everyone involved, top to bottom, we're finding that the comic industry instead is being completely replaced by all these other mediums that comics have kind of weaseled their way into. Uh, and instead, everything should be successful. But it's because the comic industry itself has collapsed so much. It's retracted to the point. I mean, 4,000 stores in 2008, 2009 right. to 2020, we have less than 2,000 stores. This isn't this is an expansion. This is the complete opposite of that. The stores got cut in half. So the selling footprint has decreased so much. Um but if it was out there more, if you saw comics everywhere, again, if you wanted to start a business, you'd say, I see comics being bought everywhere. They're being sold everywhere. This is a good business to get into. I got to open a comic shop. I got to open a pop culture store. It makes it feel like there's some energy behind it. This isn't so risky anymore. But right. all comics look like is a gigantic risk now. And then yeah. when you go into social media, it looks like a, a, a total mess. In one of the Star Wars movies, Yoda says, fear leads to anger, anger leads to hate, hate leads to suffering. Are, are the industry professionals afraid of the indie market, do you think? I mean, you look at hundreds of thousands of dollars going over to Indiegogo, you know, Ethan Van Skyver making a million with Cyberfrog 2, you've got, you know, six digits on multiple projects. You know, Brian Polito's doing, you know, I, I don't know, he's, he's aware of 14 or 15 different projects that have made made bank over there now. They're starting to make this a thing. It's not just a one-and-done, you know, uh, lightning-in-a-bottle thing. They're actually turning this into a model that is relatively successful. Are they... Are the professionals, and I use that term light, very, very loosely, are they afraid of the indie market? Are they afraid of people like you? Because right now, like, like I say, you've left Diamond. You've also left Comixology. You've got your own distribution. You've got alternative distribution consumer level or at the retail level. At what point are they going to look at this democratization of the industry and, and realize that it's probably a good thing because it does get comics out through other channels not just this one little box you have to go through this tunnel and we have to open the gate for you yeah um as far as i'm not quite sure if they're afraid of the success of indies as much as uh, they might be confused and uh, a bit jealous by it um but uh, the fear angle of it is I think they fear each other more than anything. I don't think they necessarily fear the indies. I think they fear the next person breaking out of the system and chipping away at what's already been there. The next company that decides to put their foot down. And I'm waiting still. I thought Dynamite would have been that company. But uh, they they apparently couldn't see that whoever didn't want to, to be there to make comics, to to tell great stories and be a part of something and not usher in a new, uh, a new dangerous wave of, of self censorship within the industry, because that's the thing. We're not getting attacked on the outside. Um, this isn't the nineties with, um, the, the far right, uh, 
being, you know, just taking a whole hit out on entertainment industries, video games, comics, everything. Um, this isn't anything like that. This is this is within the industry itself where they're, they're championing it. This isn't even anything close to Wortham and the Senate trials and everything else, which the comic industry actually won, by the way. But they they still self-censored anyway, uh, yeah. mostly to, you know, kind of cripple out EC Comics, which was dominating at the time. Um, a lot of the wording in there destroyed and eliminated horror comics completely. Uh, so... It, it, it was kind of a weird way to t take out competition. And this is another weird way of it, too. Um, now, are they afraid of this competition? I don't know. I find that if people, like, they can't um, compete, they try to control. And if they can't control, they try to destroy. Uh, so there's a little bit of fear, I think, in terms of, well, I don't know. Can can Like I said before, it's it's an illusion of control. So they're kind of afraid of the rejection from the reader or the rejection from a publisher or the rejection from a peer. Um, but I don't think they're necessarily afraid and that's what's driving everything. I think that kind of planted a couple of the seeds along with some other stuff. And that's created this whole wave of, well, we have to squash it. We have to make sure that, that it doesn't succeed because I don't know if we can compete it's kind of self-doubt. It's not so much fear of anyone else as it is fear of failure, uh, fear of trying, fear of saying, well, I have my own thing I want to do. And um, even if a publisher doesn't want it, um, I'm going to still get it out there and I'm going to still be the driving force. And that's what a lot of indie people right now, um, whether they're comic skate, not comic skate, whatever it is, they have that. They have that self-starter motivation, that entrepreneurship that you need to say, you know what? It'd be great if I could find someone to help me. It'd be great if they could benefit and add something to what I want to do. But if I can't, I'm still getting it out there. It's hard, if not impossible, to compete with someone who's immovable and is going also a thousand miles an hour. And that's kind of what's happening right now with indie comics. They're saying, you can't move me, and I'm going to come and charge this you anyway. And everyone else is like, well, I don't know. How do I, how do I, <laughs> how do I defeat that? <laughs> well, you have to send a, a message that it is the ultimate evil <laughs> and, yeah. and that they are all these awful, horrible things. Um, you know, and you pry upon maybe the tiniest of flaws, or maybe some people have larger flaws. They're not, no, no one's perfect. I'm not perfect. No one's perfect. None of us are saints. None of us are ideal anythings. But everyone's trying their best. Everyone's a different person. And if you can pry, though, on someone's flaws, someone's little, the little uh, Achilles heel they may have, and get people to ignore everything else, everything they may have done or said that's a positive or a wonderful thing or something that has, has brought greatness into the world and kindness or any kind of positive anything, um, but just make them harp on the negative. You can completely destroy the credibility and the integrity of anyone. And people have figured out that that's the way to do it. When I can't compete and I can't control, I'll do this instead. Yeah. And it's manipulation of people, which is so awful. And that's the heart of what censorship is, too. It's manipulation. And as we find out in the past couple of years, the comic industry has been rife with manipulation of each other. So they're all fearful of each other. They're all ready to be like, 
oh, you know what? Yeah, uh, yeah, this person was that way. I kind of knew the whole time, but I was just scared. Yeah. What? Some of these people have done awful, awful things. And you were scared to, because what, you might have lost your job in comics? I mean, but, but, but you're, not, you're not scared, though, to make up lies about some people and to destroy them completely because you think it might benefit you because the rest of the group said so. Um, only when the rest of the group seems to approve of it, then you decide, oh, yeah, that person. Uh, I always knew that person was always bad. That, that, what is that? Don't do that. Well, and it's the nature of the accusations that seem to be enough. You don't even have to have any kind of proof. You know, the, you know, the, the phrase nowadays, show us the receipts. You don't have to have any of that. All you have to do is have a credible accusation, something that sounds good. Um, you know, as best we can figure, you know, for Warren Ellis, for example, it, it didn't really do anything criminal as far as we can tell from what he's accused of doing, it might have been creepy, but some of these accusations, well, like Mags and, and Sean Gordon Murphy, oh, he was nice to you, and you were expecting what? I mean, I, it, it, there's this disconnect in how the accusations are put out there and the substance behind the accusations, which is generally, they're not a whole lot there. And it just seems to be this, it's, it's, it's the cancel cult, but it's that, you know, the McCarthyism, the Red Scare, the, you know, the going after D&D, &D, like you were talking about in the 80s, all, all of these different things. It's that, it's that scare factor. We want to we want to get people away from the bad people, and we get to decide who the bad people are, and the bad people will change, and you know based on whatever it is that we decide we're going to do is that that whisper network at work. Um, so yeah, and and yeah. it's I don't know there there's no easy answer for this. Except, I mean, you guys are taking steps. You have your you have your own distribution channel set up now. Uh, you're you're doing interviews and you're and you're on other other people's streams. Uh, you mentioned Robert Geronimo earlier. You're going to be on his channel tomorrow at yep. uh, at noon. So uh, we'll we'll put a link to his channel in our in our show notes. Um, or your your time noon. Uh, my my time, time noon. One. Your time one. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we will leave it at that. The terrible, awful, no good Peter Samedi. Thank you very much. Well, I'd, for, I'd like uh, to leave you... it on something positive. Oh, though. sure, Can sure, absolutely, positive? absolutely. Okay. All right. So even though all this stuff is going on, even though we have everything in turmoil right now, even though it seems like it might be the worst possible time in the world to want to create anything, a comic book, a movie, a song, whatever, um, don't buy into it. Uh, don't believe it. All you have to do is find that strength within yourself. Realize, you know what? I have a story to tell. I have a comic book to make. I have whatever it is. This is what I want to do. This is something that means something to me. And when people come at you, stand your ground. Hold your ground. You don't even need to fight back, all right? I know when it happens, it's tough. It's really difficult to deal with. Believe me, I know. I understand. But if you move back one inch, if you compromise on yourself as a creative individual and you allow yourself to not just be censored or shut down, 
by a customer, let's say, uh, a potential customer, which is even more of a, a vague term, but by those that you would see as peers, those who are not just peers, but competitors, always view it as that. It is a competitor that wishes to shut you down and silence you so that they don't need to compete any longer. Get, find some strength in that and realize, you know what? It means I'm onto something. I'm going to keep creating. I'm going to keep doing something. And eventually it doesn't matter anymore. Everything else kind of fades into the background. But right now is the best time in the world, the best time in the world to be a comic creator. Just understand it's going to come with a little bit of blowback. It's going to come with people thinking, you know what? I don't know. You're a comic creator, right? A little bit edgy, a little bit dangerous. Be okay with that. It's all right because you're, you're someone who's moving things forward. You're someone who is telling stories and being creative and channeling emotion. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's a negative emotion, but you're channeling it into something positive. You're creating. And that's a wonderful thing at the end of the day, no matter what it is. And that's something to support. That's something to advocate for. We should not be advocating for any kind of censorship of the arts. To borrow a phrase from uh, most people who, who aren't fans of me, um, censorship of the arts will never and has never been on the right side of history. So if you're someone who's creating and you're moving forward, keep it up. Keep doing it. Don't be scared. Don't be intimidated. Keep doing your thing. And I guarantee there's a ton of people out there that are going to love you for it. They're going to support you. And they're going to be all about what you're creating. And it's because of the fact that you're holding some integrity to the fact that you're not going to budge when people tell you to stop. All right. Well, we will let Peter Smitty have the last word. Uh, that's... Uh... That's some good inspiring words there. And 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 it and it does feed into that comparison that people make between you and Stan Lee, being as enthusiastic as you are about comics. Um and and I know sometimes that makes you a little uncomfortable to have that comparison out there, but there are a lot of people uh that say that Peter Samedi is a modern day Stan Lee. So congratulations on your success. Good luck with continued success and everything that that's going on. Hopefully it will not be another year before we get to, to sit down with you again and do another interview. I, I will, we'll chase around the, the track a few times, but uh, we'll definitely have you back here very soon and, and continue the conversation. Well, thank you so much, Jason. Really appreciate it. All right, thank you. The website alternacomics.com. We will uh, we will leave links there, as well as a link to Robert's uh, channel for tomorrow's interview. And in the meantime, those of you who are new to the channel, if you're just finding us, uh, we do invite you to uh, subscribe and hit the notification bell. And uh, we will continue these conversations Monday through Thursday at noon central. And we will have other programs uh, later on tonight. We'll have uh, a new Comic-Con cancellations update. And, of course, we've got uh, Deep Space Minds coming up Friday night at 8 o'clock. We'll be talking to Stan Wu, John Atkin, and Dan Dickholz about the Yorktown A Time to Heal fan film from 1987, Star Trek fan film. So we want you to tune in for that. And uh, that'll do it for us. Thanks very much for watching, folks. We will be back later. This has been Thanks a presentation folks. of Sci-Fi for Me Radio. Copyright 2020 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media.